the character adds a lot to those tales and without them I mean it Sherlock would not have a nemesis one of his many nemes nemeses nemesis nemesises um <laughs> Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a book podcast from the Port Moody Public Library. I am your host, Corrine, and today we are talking about my favorite genre, a true crime. Finally, my week has come, and dragging along with me, I have my fellow co-hosts, Virginia, Liz, Sadie, and Fiona, and they are all thrilled. Now, this is one of my favorite genres, which has kind of seen an explosion in popularity recently. And maybe seen isn't quite the right word for it. Podcasts have kind of exploded the genre of true crime, things like Serial, and then later documentaries like Tiger King has kind of drawn what was once a very niche interest into the mainstream. However, true crime has always been a part of the human experience. The first written true crime examples that we have come from China, which were the amazingly titled book, Book of Swindles, which was just a fantastic collection of all these con men who had gone town to town, bilking people out of their money, and people wanted to read this. This spawned an explosion of magistrate bow stories about different crimes that happened in different places and the courtroom trials that followed. In England, there are things like broadsides and pamphlets and the ever-popular, extremely strange genre niche of murder ballads. Oh yes, it's a song about murder. Why people are interested in true crime, I think, is because it brings a sense of sense to chaos. It brings order and an explanation for horrible things happening in the world. True crime often tries to explain the why instead of just the how. So we get a little bit of the psychology, of the sociology, of what makes someone do something like this. And it's not always an easy answer. It would be nice to say that all criminals are bad people who were born bad and they were bad when they were kids and then they were very bad teenagers and then they were extremely bad adults who did bad things. But we know that that is not the case. And that's why true crime right now is so interesting because it is delving into bigger societal and systemic issues that create crime. And not even just crime. True crime right now is looking at how people of color and other people from marginalized communities, such as the LBTQ+, have been over-policed and under-protected. What a really good true crime book does is bring that injustice to light. 
whether it's a personal injustice or a larger societal injustice. And that's why I love the genre so much. So we have chosen five excellent true crime books on a variety of topics to share with you today. Just as a warning, some of these stories deal with some pretty dark things. If uh, talking about a murder or abuse is, is difficult for you to hear, then please turn off this episode and go to our next week's. We are going to start with our very first true crime, one of my favorite genres, a little heist action with Fiona. I am not a big true crime reader. I'm sort of starting to tiptoe into mystery a little bit, um, but true crime, especially murder, uh, is outside of my interests. <laughs> However, I do love a good swindle uh, or heist or other such non-violent crimes. I really um, quite enjoy them. Um, and so the book I've chosen today is actually a children's book. It's called Tricky Vic. And it is in the form of a biography about a man who actually managed to sell the Eiffel Tower. Due to uh, this man's identity as a master con man, some of the details about his life are a little bit fuzzy. However, there is lots of information about the crimes that he has committed. So, of course, the big one being um, selling the Eiffel Tower. And what he did was he actually sold it to a metal scrapper and basically got all of these metal scrappers to bid on taking down the Eiffel Tower. And this was at a time when um, the monument was not very popular. People were like, it's going to fall down and people will die. It's ugly and hideous. Not really the way that we see it now. So by telling these people that it was going to need to be kept secret, just like, you know, to make sure that there was a public outcry, but like he would sell them to the right to take it down and sell all that scrap metal. And then the, the guy that he conned into this actually was like so embarrassed that he didn't report it to the police. So that is probably his biggest con, but there's all sorts of um, other great ones in here. He was especially into um, counterfeiting money. He sort of starts out by going on like ocean cruisers and posing as nobility and then just like swindling people. I really love, um, I really love kids biographies in general because to get that sort of like breakdown, just the good stuff is such a good starting point for learning about someone. And then having the art kind of helps me stay focused and, and get through it. So this was a, a really excellent biography to kind of get my, dip my toes in to um, this con man's life. And it was also very amusing to just hear about the uh, things that he's done. You know, like he's swindling all these real people out of their like fortunes and it's terrible, but you can't help but like root for him. You know, it's the same like, you know, catch me if you can, like that sort of vibe where you're just like, wow, this person is so intelligent that, you know, life just wasn't challenging them enough. So they needed to like go out and become a con man because the, the, the regular path was just too easy. So uh, if you're like me and you're not so much on the murdery side of things, uh, but you like a little bit of crime, Al Capone makes a, an appearance 
in this book, which was very exciting. So I suggest that you uh, check it out and enjoy. Thanks, Fiona. You, you really nailed it because it's hard not to cheer for him because he didn't just try and sell the Eiffel Tower once. It was many times, many times. And it just kept working. Such an inspiration, such an inspiration. All right, we are going to move over to Liz, who has a, 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 I think like a true crime book that has a lot of connection to everyone here. That's right. So with this title, um, it immediately had a bit of a soft spot for me and I felt like I, I really had to read it. And this is called The Library Book by Susan Orlean. And Susan Arlene, she is a uh, journalist uh, and a reporter. And some of her books really delve into um, the truth of situations. But what's so great about her writing and this particular book is that she doesn't just present a specific crime or a specific incident. Um, she also provides a lot of background into the topic at hand. So with the library book, the Crime at the center of it, at the heart of this book, is the 1986 fire of the main branch of the Los Angeles Public Library. Now, because of various factors, including, of course, the type of material that was housed in the library at the time, and also the structure of the library itself, this fire was absolutely catastrophic. It burned over 2,000 degrees. It was incredibly hazardous to, um, to the fire rescue people who went on site. Over 400,000 books were lost, completely lost. And on top of that, over 700,000 more were damaged either by smoke or by water damage. Now, until this day, nobody has been charged officially or prosecuted for this crime. So, who set fire to the Los Angeles Public Library? Was it even arson? Who are our suspects? Why has this case gone unsolved? So this crime is woven throughout the book with chapters about the history of libraries in America specifically. She notes a lot of key figures, quirky figures that have shaped libraries in America. Uh, and also chronicled the evolution of libraries from small town institutions to the great community hubs that they are today. You can tell that libraries really do have a special place in her heart, in the author's heart. Um, and she really puts a lot of love and care into how well she has researched uh, and also um, presents the history of libraries. Not to mention her fantastic reporting on the specifics of the crime of the Los Angeles Public Library. And as I was reading this book, I was wondering, are we gonna crack the case? Is she actually going to solve it? She's got so much meaty information here and presents it in such a fascinating way um, that even if I didn't work in a library, I feel like I would still gravitate towards this book and really, you know, really list it as one of my top picks. I believe it was my top pick for the year that it came out. So 
with that, uh, the library book by Susan Orleon. If you're looking for a true crime book that's not murdery, that is not harrowing in the sense that individuals were physically harmed, um, then you may wish to pick this one up and see if she indeed does crack the case of the fire of the Los Angeles Public Library of 1986. That was great, Liz. It's such a wonderful, like, love letter to libraries that's kind of wrapped around this strange arson case. An odd pairing that worked. You wouldn't think, but somehow it comes together in, like, a beautiful stew. All right. Well, I am going to talk about my true crime pick. This was, I think all of us have a, a genre that is particularly agonizing to choose a book for. I think for Virginia, it would be like a horror. For Sadie, it would be fantasy. For Fiona, asking to choose one graphic novel. For Liz, only one emotionally devastating novel. And for me, this one was a little bit tricky because there have been so many really, really good books on the subject, but I think I, I chose one thinking that it would have the most appeal to people because while it is a bit of a gory case, that really isn't the point of it. It's more about what makes a person and what we can do to help a person overcome what they have done and asks the big question, is redemption possible? So Monday 8th, July 1895, a 13-year-old Robert Coombs and his 12-year-old brother Nathan um, set out from their house in a small kind of lower class uh, housing and they go to a cricket match. And over the next couple of days, these boys have a great time. They go to the seaside, they buy food for themselves that they've never tried before. They bring one of their father's uh, family friends who also works on the cruise liners to come over and kind of take care of them just to make sure that they can continue to have a good time. And for the next 10 days, the boys essentially have a golden week, a golden week where everything that they have ever wanted, they can have. And then a strange smell starts coming out of their house and the neighbors start to wonder what that smell is. Now the father of the family is out away at sea, he works on the ocean liner and the boys are often left alone with their mother. Unfortunately no one has seen Mrs. Coombs for several days. When eventually Mrs. Coombs' sister starts wondering what has happened, comes to the door and forces the police to break open their mother's bedroom door, they find a horrific discovery. What follows is exactly what you would think of a Victorian society that is obsessed with some sensational lower class happenings. And this was a society that loved reading penny dreadfuls, horrible tales done of horrible people. And so the idea that two children, two boys, murdered their mother in apparent cold blood and then went on a fun spree for 10 days afterwards is shocking beyond belief. That is just the beginning of the story. And while it is sensational, while it is almost beyond believing, what is actually more interesting is what happens to Robert after. His younger brother manages to be scot-free while pinning the entire crime on the elder. 
And so Robert, at 13 years old, is sent to jail. But that is not the end of his story. What follows afterwards in Kate Summerscale's, quite frankly, amazing feat of research in The Wicked Boy, The Mystery of Victorian Child Murder, is a fascinating tale of human redemption, of what happens when someone is given the help that they need, when someone is given the support that they lacked, of what they can achieve after that. I will be fully honest, I cried at the end of this, and that is not something I often do at a tale of a Victorian child murder. But there is something really beautiful in Robert's story that really shows you, that shows you what humanity is capable of when given a little bit of love. So it's a fantastic, wonderful book that I, I would really recommend. If you're not into true crime, you could very quickly skip over the first section and go straight into kind of what happens after. Because in this true crime book, the crime really isn't the point. And that's my pick. Now, since this is a true crime themed episode, I am going to ask a true crime themed existential question. And my question to all of you is, who to you is the greatest villain in literature? Who do you love to hate? Virginia, who do you love to hate? So I don't hate villains, never, because I always find them a lot more interesting. When I was a kid, who's my favorite Transformer? Megatron. Who's my favorite He-Man? Skeletor. So you're asking an impossible question, like, who do I hate? Like, I know, like, I can. However, Liz did remind me, as we were talking about this, that I hate Joffrey from the Game of Thrones. Who doesn't, right? Right? Who doesn't? But like, I, yeah, I, I think if we're talking about somebody I just cannot stand, I guess it would be Joffrey. I, I don't really, now that I think about it, there's really nothing redeeming about Joffrey at all. That's that's fair. That's fair. I can see why the actor who played him in the uh, series just quit acting after that. Well, how, how, what else can you do? Nothing. No, because everybody's just going to look at you and be like, <laughs> like, that's all you can think about. So Perfect. All right, Liz. Liz, who is your villain? I didn't really think of any of the classic villains. Um and, you know, have a full out hate for any of them. Hate's a strong word, by the way. Um, so I thought I'd go the children's book route. So uh, if you're familiar with Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree, what that child does to that selfless giving tree is absolutely reprehensible. You kind of nabbed mine, Liz, because yeah, no one is more evil than the child in the giving tree. Pretty terrible. Straight up monster monster all right Sadie what about you so I have gone more the love to hate this villain um because while they are are definitely a true villain I I don't dislike them all that much um and they are Moriarty Dr. Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes stories I think that uh the character adds a lot to those tales and without them I mean, it, Sherlock would not have a nemesis. One of his many nemes nemeses, nemesis, 
nemesises. Um, he would not have that person. Um, and so I, uh, I have chosen Dr. Moriarty uh, from the Sherlock Holmes stories and in all of their iterations. Oh, I see. No, no favorite Moriarty. Well, I do. Um, I'm not going to know what the actor's name, but the Benedict Cumberbatch Moriarty. I thought he did a, a, a convincingly creepy job. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a different different discussion for a different podcast <laughs> episode. Uh, we should quickly move on. Um, uh, sorry, Fiona, Fiona, what's your favorite villain? All right. Um, well, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Uh, but I think Count Dracula is a very good villain. Mostly I like to read things that don't have villains or that have like very nuanced villains, um, you know, and sort of like have their redemption. But like Dracula's just the worst. He's a horrible monster. Um, he's creepy and oh, Virginia has sympathy for Count Dracula apparently. Wow. <laughs> but he's, he's a, he's a, he's a fun bad guy for sure <laughs> okay okay um yeah i think if i'm choosing a villain to hate and for me liz this is not too strong of a word and i, I really can't say this because i've only read about 10 pages of the book but um the narrator in american psycho did not care for them did not care for them and i i love hating them love hating them it brings me joy <laughs> but as virginia said sometimes you love to cheer for a villain so maybe that will be our, our follow-up question for the next episode which villain did you actually cheer for <laughs> all right i think we will move on to sadie next sadie what is your pick all right well my pick um i'm gonna start off by saying i am similar to fiona i do not read a lot of um, true crime. I That is actually an overstatement to say that I don't read a lot of true crime. Um, this may be one of the only true crime books that I have read. And similar to Fiona, I don't always like to read about murder because I like to separate murder and reality. So I think that is what I struggle with true crime. I can accept murder in a mystery book that is fictionalized. I have more difficult time accepting murder when it could potentially happen in my life. And um, the pick that I have chosen, it did happen in my city. So the book that I have uh, chosen to talk about is Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer by Eve Lazarus. Uh, so this is a local book. Um, it does talk about a local murder that occurred in the 60s, the 1960s. And um, this story tells the tale of Esther Castellani and Renee Castellani. And Renee was a very personable, charismatic radio uh, host in the 1960s in Vancouver. And one day his wife, Esther, started to feel sick didn't seem to be getting any better no matter what they did. Um, they couldn't figure out what it was that was making her sick. Her stomach was very upset. Um, she eventually got uh, brought to the hospital. No matter what, no matter what tests they did, they could not figure out what was going on with her, what was wrong. She just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. 
And while she was in the hospital, Renee, like a very dedicated, loyal, good husband, uh, he would always come to visit her and he would always uh, bring her her favorite milkshake because who doesn't want a milkshake? You don't want to eat all of that hospital food. It was just not, not a good time. Um, and so he would always bring her this milkshake, which was very kind, but it didn't help. Um, and Esther did eventually pass away. Now the day after uh, Esther passes away, Renee decides that he's going to take his daughter, Janine, and his secretary, uh, Lolly, and her son, Don, on a trip to Disneyland. So they get in the car and they go to Disneyland. He tells the police that he doesn't think he wants to do an autopsy on his wife. Um, he just would rather kind of let it, let it go. So then they start to think, maybe... The reason he didn't want to do an autopsy was because he was concerned with what they were going to find. So as the story goes on, we learn more about Renee. We learn a bit about what was going on in Vancouver at that time. Um, and then we learn the true cause of Esther's death and the connection to the milkshakes that Renee uh, may have been bringing her and how that may have caused uh, Esther to lose her life. I enjoyed it because it had that local connection. So it was really cool to, to read about the places they were going and to recognize the streets and the, and the buildings and everything that they were, they were actually going to. Um, and it was nice to kind of see those connections that I, that I actually knew where they were. Uh, so it was fun to have that local connection. It, um, it definitely revolves around the murder, but it, it's not a gruesome murder. Um, so you don't really have to deal with kind of the goriness or the suspense of the crime or anything like that. Um, so if you're looking for something that doesn't have goriness, doesn't have a ton of suspense, involves a, a story about the people that are involved and the time and place that they lived in, uh, this would be a really good one um, for you. And that, again, is Murder by Milkshake by Eve Lazarus. Thank you, Sadie. And Eve Lazarus um, is an absolute delight and has maybe the most perfect name for a true crime writer. Um, so snappy. <laughs> <laughs> she does. Mm -hmm. I think she just had a new book come out as well. Ooh, very exciting. Yeah, she does a lot of like Vancouver specific history, which is always so interesting to kind of look at your city through new eyes. All right, Virginia, you are up next. Let us hear your pick. All right, let's save the heaviest one to the last. <laughs> this is unlike, I think, most of what my friends were talking about today. This is a very different kind of true crime book. Um, this is The Fact of a Body by Alexandra Masano Lesnovich. This is a true crime and is also a memoir. Two categories that I don't really read in either, but this is a very personal story even though Alexandra has nothing to do with the crime itself it is still a very personal account Alexandra studied law just like her parents and while she was in law school she did an internship at a law firm that specialized in retrials for people who have been convicted of a crime and sentenced to death Alexandra is strongly, strongly against the death penalty, and she wants to help people who have been given the death penalty. So she decided to 
work at the law firm. And as you can imagine, the law firm deals with a lot of cases that are very intense. It's very, very hard for people to to listen to. And but Alexandra Fink, because of her strong belief that she'll be okay, she can handle this. And that is until she hears the story of Ricky Langley, a man who has been convicted a few years ago of the murder of six-year-old Jeremy Guillory. As Alexandria listened to the recording of his confession, him describing what happened, she was filled with a strong, strong reaction that Ricky Langley deserves to die. She's shocked by her reaction. She can't quite figure out why she feels this way. And so she wanted to figure it out. And and the book is sort of the result of her trying to figure out what happened. Why does she feel so strongly about this? So the book have chapters, alternating chapters between the story of Ricky Langley and his family, even way before Ricky was born, and chapters with Alexandra and her family and her story. And in telling the story, in, in exploring what happened, Alexandra showed us, and, and she mentioned this a few times in the book, that what you see in Ricky Langley depends so much more on who you are than who Ricky is. Because we don't look at things, we don't interact with the world with objectivity. We're not impartial. We look through things, we focus on things through our lens of what we experience. And and Alexandra is, through the stories, trying to figure out why is she so angry about this? And, and in working out that, she looks at what the kind of things that she focused on in, in this story of Ricky Langley. And it is a lot more personal than she, she would like to see. And I think she when she described Ricky's story, she fill in a lot of blanks. She, she imagined what it is like. She imagined the people. She imagined what the people see. And, and as she pointed out, like when we, if, if you read about a, a dark gray family sedan, if your family own one, you're going to picture that sedan in your mind. You're going to remember maybe you and your brothers and sisters running to the car, try to get to the window seat every time you go out. You may remember that there was an orange juice stain on the seat when you spill orange juice all over the car. You might remember like how hard it is to crank that window open because it's kind of broken. Like you read yourself into the story. And, and Alexander is trying to, to look through the story and trying to see how we because of the kind of things that we focus on, that the story is different every time. And I think it also looks at the justice system and how, again, facts are being presented, evidence is being admitted to court, but there are many, many more facts, many, many more sides of the story, many, many more things about the story that is not being told, that someone has deemed irrelevant to the case as she researched this book, looking for thousands and thousands of pages of of the extra facts, the extra story. What makes the people do the things that they do? What makes the people react the way that they react to? And, And in that, trying to work out after her own personal trauma, how why she react the way she does, why her family reacts the way they do, and and how we take away the facts, we omit the facts, we throw them away when we're trying to present a nice, neat package of, of who we are sometimes um, and, and how we can continue on, you know, having experienced a trauma um, that, you know, that she did and that Ricky Langley and, and his family and Jeremy's family. And it's, 
a really compelling read. Like if you're looking for a, a true crime book that has a beginning, a middle, and end, and everything is kind of neatly wrapped up, and that you feel like, oh, you know, like they 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 got what they deserve, or that they, you know, like you 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 find that you feel vindicated afterwards. Like this is not this is not the book. But if you're looking for a book where you like not not necessarily excuse or or you know like or explain human behavior, but just to kind of explore all the different bits of the story that you may not see because we all look at it story on a different lens. I think this would be a really interesting, compelling read. Thank you so much, Virginia. And that's that's kind of what good true crime does is that it spurs you to some sort of action, whether that's kind of like internal introspection about you and your own life, or whether it is contemplating the human condition or humanity, or whether it is action to look at something external. So asking questions of why are there only certain types of victims that get airtime and police attention? Why are the ones that we see on the news young, female, white, and straight? It can make you ask the question of what and why are certain populations overrepresented in prison? So, for example, in Canada, 30% of the prison population is from a First Nations, Inuit, Métis background, but that is only 5% of the total population in Canada. It can make you ask the question, why are there certain sets of laws for certain types of people and other sets of laws for other types of people? I think that what true crime does really well is that if done correctly, it talks about crime as a symptom. That crime is a symptom of poverty, of racism, of sexism, of bigotry and colonialism. And that by examining sometimes a personal story and giving it that, that bigger context of, of looking at the, judi the judicial side, the societal side, the cultural context of a particular crime, we have a better understanding of our society and the problems with it. So you've seen a great big spectrum of what the true crime genre can bring to you. And I heartily recommend you maybe pick up one of the books that's, that's for your own comfort level and, and see, see what the genre can bring for you. We hope that you enjoyed our book talk. We hope that you enjoyed Keep It Fictional and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.